Hey y'all, welcome back to Tailwagon True Crime. I'm your host, Margaret Scott, and on today's episode, we're going to head back to the early 1980s in Virginia to one of the first most interesting crimes that was able to have a conviction and an arrest based on DNA evidence in Virginia. This was huge. I mean, we're talking early 1980s, 1984, into the late 1980s. Even so, DNA evidence at this time was still just brand new, and there was a lot of controversy around this, as you'll see um, when we get into this episode. Due to the nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. Uh, This episode will contain information about rape and murder and may not be suitable for all ages. So please make sure if you're not ready to listen to this, this is your trigger warning now. We will be discussing rape. We will be discussing murder. Um, If you have little ones in the car, you may want to hit pause and resume later. first crimes that was committed was in the early 1980s in Arlington, which is right outside of the D.C. area. Um, and in the early 1980s, Arlington was still a booming area. They were still up and coming, obviously being right outside of D.C., lots of politicians, lots of lawyers, lots of doctors. You know, it, it was just a very up and coming area. Um, but A serial murderer emerged in 1984. At this point, the Southside Strangler was on the loose and just getting started. The story starts on January 25th, 1984, when a female lawyer, Carolyn Hamm, was found naked, hands tied behind her back, and she was face down on her bed. She had been raped, and some sources say that she had to have been hung up in the indoor entry to her garage at some point. Obviously, the killer must have moved her because she was found face down on her bed. She wasn't hanging when they found her. The killer had cut ropes from a Venetian blind set and left the knife on the kitchen floor. Um, Ham lived alone in a neighborhood that had a very low crime rate. So, of course, this case, especially in that area, started making headline news, and I'm sure the police felt a ton of pressure to make an arrest very quickly and figure out what was done, and that's exactly what they did. They obtained a confession and um, took that to court, and he was locked up. However, the police found out later that the man who who they initially arrested was actually innocent and basically it was a forced confession. I I couldn't find any records of of the actual confession from that man. Um my guess is they expunged everything from his records given that he was actually innocent. Um but this has happened all over where, you know, sometimes they just force confessions and they take it to court that way. But anyways, so after that, it had been almost three full years before 
another incident had happened. On December 1st, 1987, Susan Tucker was found dead laying across her bed. She was naked, um, but the killer had partially covered her, which was a little bit different from Carolyn Ham. Um, she had been dead for several days when she was finally found. Uh, similar to Carolyn Ham's case, the rope had been cut from Venetian blinds. She had been tied up, raped, and strangled. Other similarities uh, to the first crime were multiple semen stains indicating the killer masturbated over the dead bodies or over the bodies. I don't know that they actually found out if they were dead or not, but uh, then the evidence of a break-in through a rear window, and there was also evidence of robbery. As the investigation started, the detective that was assigned to this case turned up similar cases in Richmond area, which from Arlington to Richmond, you're looking at maybe a three-hour drive. In the 80s, it might have been a little bit different because... Vehicles now probably go a lot faster than vehicles in the 80s, um, as well as there are more roads in the Virginia area. But regardless, Virginia to or Arlington to Richmond is only a three-hour drive. It's a couple hours away. And all the murders took place in 1987 as well. In Richmond, the first was discovered on September 19th. Debbie Davis, she lived alone in a first-floor apartment. Two weeks later, and a half a mile away, Dr. Susan Hellas, I'm, I'm sure I didn't pronounce that right, was found dead in her bedroom closet. Her hands had been tied, and she had been strangled with a belt. The third murder in the Richmond area was a 15-year-old girl, Diane Cho, murdered in her bedroom while her brother and her parents were sleeping, you know, just a few doors away in the same house. Uh, she had been strangled with the rope, her hands were tied, and her mouth had been duct taped. Uh, she too had been raped and there were semen stains on the sheets found around her. At this point, the detective really had to look into how these were logically connected, and he faced big hurdles convincing his colleagues that they were all connected. Um, personally, I think some of this is due to bias, uh, that they had already convicted somebody in Arlington, uh, and they didn't want to assume that it was the same person because they had put somebody away in Arlington already. Um, and that could make a department look really bad, but that's just my personal thought on it. I really have no idea what the thought process was of the police department then. Uh, but the detective continued his investigation. He found that a series of burglaries in the same neighborhood as the murders had happened and a string of rapes in each city were all committed by the same man who killed the women, or at least that was the thought, was that all of these had to have been the same man. 
One of the break-ins happened in a similar manner. Somebody entered the home through a basement window, but the victim found uh, pornographic magazines were left behind and a length of Venetian blind cord uh, had been placed on her bed. Most likely she was supposed to be one of the women that uh, wound up dead, but for some reason he left it may have been that it was getting too late and she wasn't home yet. Um, it, it doesn't matter. Luckily, he had left and her life was saved. Um, one of the rape victims recounted that she was awakened to a black man wearing a ski mask and had a knife. He threatened her, made her drink Southern Comfort, and was taunting her. He tied her up and raped and tortured her for three hours. Three hours she was tortured. A neighbor above the apartment heard the woman crying and came down to investigate and the rapist quickly left. Uh, The fourth rape victim had tape put on her mouth to keep her from crying out, but as he tried to cut the blind cords, she was able to escape. Uh, Those that said the detective's story was weak because of the locations and the time frame, uh, the detective found out it could be explained by saying that Spencer was in prison for burglary during part of that time, and when he was released, he was put into a halfway house in Richmond, which is why some of the uh, rapes and burglaries and murders happened in the Richmond area. And then later on, he went back to Arlington. However, it has not been confirmed that all of these cases are connected. Timothy W. Spencer was revealed to be the strangler and was arrested January 1988 and went to trial in July. He went to trial on three capital murders. During the trial for the 15-year-old girl, the Washington Post has a quote from Spencer saying, I would just like to say I am sorry that my family is going through this. I feel sorry for the person who got killed and her family. I would like to get a chance to prove that I ain't this sort of person. End quote. I have no words for that. Spencer was sentenced to death twice and he was already planning on an appeal. Uh, During the trials, DNA evidence was presented throughout all of the trials, even with the DNA evidence and all the other evidence. Uh, Spencer continued to claim his innocence. Um, He did appeal three times, all the way up to the Fourth Circuit Court. Every time it was denied... The first appeal took place on October 28, 1992. The decision was made on September 16, 1993. The major appeal was the DNA testing because around the same time of his trials, a trial had taken place in New York where the DNA evidence that was presented and tested by a third party um, wasn't a full match or It was kind of skewed, um, and the defense also didn't know about the DNA test so they could adequately defend him. Uh, They said the trial should not have admitted the DNA evidence, and they also claimed that one of the jurors was racially motivated. 
the court denied the appeal saying DNA testing was properly done and they vetted all of the jurors prior to and did not find where um, anything would have been uh, racially motivated from any of the jurors. The second appeal took place on September 30th, 1993 and was decided on February 3rd, 1994. This was in the Fourth Circuit Court. This time, he raised seven issues. Ineffectiveness of counsel, failure to, failure to procure a defense DNA expert, voyeur dire, mitigating evidence, deficient handling of DNA evidence, and an actual innocence claim. The appeal was denied and the judgment of the district court was affirmed. The third appeal happened on in December 1993 and was decided on March 1st, 1994. It was also in the Fourth Circuit Court. He raised three issues. Just instruction and verdict at sentencing phase did not adequately address mitigating evidence. Virginia appellate review of death sentence is inadequate and forensic DNA profiling is unreliable. All of these were thrown out because two of them were not brought up in the first appeal, and the evidence one was exhausted because he had not stated a federal claim with respect to the allegations. They also stated even if they construe his petition alleging the denial of due process, the result would remain the same. Uh, the court held the affirmed district court's decision, and a lot of it was based on the lack of complying with procedural laws of Virginia. Timothy Spencer was as executed on April 27, 1994. Just before the execution, the lawyer did um, try to request that the execution execution be halted um, for an outside DNA test to be run, another outside DNA test to be run. But at 10.45 p.m., the U.S. Supreme Court denied, and the very next day was the execution day. There were other crimes that happened around the same time, but those were never connected to him, and there is some suspicion that they are considered and I believe still considered to be um, a copycat. So he was never convicted of those. There was also some other um, burglaries and rapes that uh, he was thought to be connected to. But again, he was never formally connected or convicted for any of those. Um, he was just convicted on the three capital murder charges. <laughs> Well, that's all for today's episode. It's hard to believe that the first person arrested and convicted based on DNA evidence was someone right here in Virginia. Uh, I mean, there are so many other serial murderers that come to mind that probably could have been or should have been caught prior to uh, this man 
just based on DNA evidence. And uh, however, that's not what happened. This man was the first person convicted with DNA evidence, which is pretty freaking awesome. Now, of course, we use DNA evidence all the time. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I hope you come back next week uh, for another intriguing episode based in Virginia. Um, If you would like to follow me on Instagram, you can. It's at Tailwagon True Crime. You can also follow me on Facebook at Tailwagon True Crime. And you're welcome to email me at thescottcomedia at gmail.com. I hope you have a great rest of your week and weekend. Stay safe and be vigilant. and True Crime is a production of Scott Co. Media, and these podcasts wouldn't be possible without the assistance of my sidekicks, Aston and Simba. Simba.